0: What do you think would make us a more perfect church? I use that a little bit hyperbolically. but If you could choose one thing, you'd say, this would make our church better. If we were to have uh, an assessment, we will at some point. I don't know when we're up for that constitutionally. But at some point we'll assess ourselves and we'll ask, "What, what would make us a better church? What would your answer be? What would make us a church more like the church in heaven? Maybe you'd say, maybe if our doctrine were more sound, if we all had a greater understanding of Scripture, if we were better taught and we understood the Lord, and we were able to apply the truths of Scripture, our church would be more like heaven. Maybe your answer would be, if we had more charismatic experience, more emotion, more feeling, and sometimes when I come to church and through our worship, I just kind of feel dry, I don't feel like we're emotive enough. And maybe if we had more of that dramatic experience, that would make our church and our worship better. Maybe you would say, if we were more influential in our culture, that we seem to be kind of stuck away here, and we don't have greater impact, or much impact in the world around us, and if we were more involved in our community, that would make us a church more like heaven. Or maybe you would say if we excelled in philanthropic mercy and care for others, if we were more compassionate and did more mercy, ministry, gave more to the poor, that would make us a better church. And all those things might be good answers. But what is the best answer? The attribute that would most make us like heaven. And if I'm understanding 1 Corinthians 13 rightly, I think the answer is love. That would make our church more like heaven, more than any other thing we could strive for. The answer would be love. If we were to excel in any key attribute, that's what we would want to excel in. One scholar says that love is that quality which distinctively stamps the life of heaven. If we're to pursue any attribute, it ought to be love. We read that from 1 Corinthians 13. This is one of the most famous passages in Scripture, mostly because it's read at weddings, right? We hear this at weddings, and it's appropriate for weddings because there probably is no better description anywhere of love. But of course, this passage wasn't first written for husband and wife and their love together. This passage was written as a rebuke. It was a correction. It was intended for a church that lacked love. The church in Corinth who received this letter was a gifted church, as we've been talking about. Some had gifts of great knowledge. Some had gifts of great faith. Some had gifts of communication, of prophecy and tongues and speaking. Some had gifts of miraculous healing. But they were proud in their gifts. They became condescending in their gifts. They valued some over others, and they became divisive and divided in the church over their gifts. So Paul writes in the middle of his discourse on gifts and how they should be used in the church, right in the middle, he reminds them of what is most important. What is more important than pursuing giftedness or being a skilled church or greater than other things, what is most important in the church is love. It's Paul's word for Corinth and it's God's word for us. We must pursue love more than giftedness. That's the basic point of this whole chapter. We must pursue love more than giftedness. If we are going to have any one thing define our church that would make it reflect a church that God approves of. That would reflect the church as it Will exist in the new heavens and the new earth. And more than anything else, more than any gift, must be a church defined by and known for our love. Our agenda this morning will be unpack that, to unpack that, and explore why we as a church should make love our highest ambition. And Paul will make this point in three sections. The chapter is very easy to break down. Three reasons why. We must pursue love more than godliness. First reason found verses 1 through 3. The first reason love must be our highest pursuit is that love is essential. That's the point of verses 1 through 3. Love is essential. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Maggie, my dear bride, was was doing a lot of baking. Sometimes she does that. So she's making a a ton of baked goods. And if you know my wife, you know she can bake. If you look at me, you would not be surprised by the fact that she can bake. Uh, And she was making baked goods to store in the freezer. You know, sometimes we'll she'll make muffins and then freeze them and microwave them for a quick breakfast, making baked goods for others to to give away, all that kind of thing. So making dozens of muffins. And as they came out, came to the startling realization that has happened to any of you who bake, an ingredient was missing, in fact, two. Sugar and baking powder. And you know... No matter how skilled the baker, no matter how great and wonderful the other ingredients, if that is missing, the muffin and the bacon is inedible. And that's like a church without love. It doesn't matter how good the other ingredients are. Without love, it is useless because love is essential. Verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul here is showing the Corinthians a more excellent way. And he is going to use hyperbolic, even hypothetical gifts to contrast with love. and saying, essentially, no matter how good and great and grand these other gifts may be, if you do not have the essential ingredient of love, They are useless. So he starts with tongues. Tongues being the ability to speak in a language you don't know how to speak or a a language you previously didn't know, to be able to speak in a different language. And he says, if I spoke in the tongues of men and of angels, and of course there's great debate as to whether or not there is such a language of angels that exists on earth, and, and really that's beside the point. Paul is simply saying, Even if an angelic language did exist and we could speak it, no matter how great our tools of communication and eloquence may be, if love does not drive the speech, he says, I am a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. He doesn't even say, my speech is annoying. He says, I am annoying. Those of you who have kids and have given them pots and pans to play music with know the sound that Paul's getting at here. No matter how well you speak, if you speak without love, you are doing more harm than good. The same is true with prophetic powers with knowledge of mysteries and understanding of all of God's truth and faith that can move mountains. Again, Paul speaks hyperbolically. If I understood all mysteries and I could speak all of God's revelation, all of God's prophetic words. Consider what Paul's describing here. Somebody who can know and understand and teach all mysteries of the faith. If you know our Christian faith, you know it's a faith of mysteries. How do you understand the Trinity, the God who is three in one? Well, there's a mystery there. If you could understand all mysteries and have all knowledge of all that God's Word teaches and who God is, it would not do any good if you didn't have love. Content, truth, doctrine, theology, is useless without love. I think that's an important word for us. It's an important word for me. We're living in a world right now, and you've felt this, I'm sure, but we are now, as a church, and I use the kind of church in the global sense, and particularly here in our Western world, we are experiencing a culture shift where the church is becoming the minority culture if it isn't there already. And for some of us, that's uncomfortable, it's new, and it's not the way it feels like it used to be. We are not leaders in our culture anymore. And we may look around the world all around us and see all the wrong on the news, on social media, in institutions. And our temptation can be We have to fight this with truth somehow. And we've got to get the world back on our side with all of our powers of understanding and truth. And certainly, you know me, you know I value truth and doctrine. We must be a people of truth. But if we respond to our world with only categories of right and wrong, and do not have love driving us, we will be less than useful, even less than useless. We will be damaging in our witness. Somebody wrote about our dilemma in an article. and said, How does one share the gospel with a generation who assumes God's non-existence, cancels out anyone they disagree with, views use dialogue as hate, and doesn't experience guilt when they sin? Where do you even start? I think we start with love. That doesn't mean truth isn't involved, but it starts in our witness, in our being, in our existence, with love. Paul continues his argument with one last hypothetical, and this one might be the most shocking, actually. Verse 3 tells us, If we give away all we have, and even give our whole selves up to be burned, or as some translations say, to boast, and if we boast in our giving of ourselves. If we give up our whole selves, give away all we have, but do not love, we gain nothing. There is no advantage to it. I was in a seminary class once, and we were asked to define love. It's actually kind of difficult good thing Paul does it for us in verses 4 through 7. But it's a difficult thing to think conceptually, like, what is love? Our instinct might be to say, our best answer might be, well, love is self-sacrifice. Aren't those things the same thing? They're synonymous, tantamount to one another? Self-sacrifice equals love. And Paul here says, that's actually not true. You can be generous. You can be charitable. You can be self sacrificial. You can do all things of social justice and caring for the poor and caring for others. And you can do all of it without a lick of love. Because they are not the same thing. And that's what Paul's saying here. It is possible to give away everything. And that phrase, to give away all I have, is uh, the implication is to the poor. You can give away all you have, and if you do not have love, you gain nothing. And we've experienced people like this. You may know people like this. We are like this sometimes ourselves, where we give away what we have, but we do it with a selfish motive, or we give away to other people, and you say, you better appreciate that. Or you've known people who have said, have I not done everything for you? I gave you all I have, and you quickly realize, oh, this wasn't about love. This is about guilt. It is possible to be self-sacrificial without love. And Paul says, if that is where you are, your giving will be of no benefit. So here's the encouragement for us. If we excel at everything but love, we excel at nothing. The essential ingredient to all of our ministry Is love. Which of course brings up the question well, what is love then? If it is so important, if it is crucial that we know what love is, what love really looks like, we need to know it. And Paul addresses that in verses 4 through 7. Here, Paul describes love in this famous passage. And what it is is really a veiled critique at the Corinthians. Here's all the things you're failing at. Here's where you are stumbling as a church and where I want to correct you. This is what love is. And if I could sum up these descriptions in one short way, the essence of what Paul's saying is love is selfless. That's kind of a one-word theme that runs through all of these, that love is selfless. Love is giving of self for the sake of the other, for the benefit of the other. It's not about you, it's about them. Love is is selfless, seeking the good, concerned for the good of the other, over your own good. That's what love is. Love is selfless. And Paul describes that in verses 4 through 7. He says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's Paul's famous list of what love is, and before we get into it, just a quick grammar note for those of you who love grammar, or maybe kids who are learning this in school. What part of speech is patient, kind, arrogant, rude? What what are those words? Adjectives. That's right. In the English, they're adjectives. But if you read this in the Greek, the Greek words are verbs. The way it's written in the Greek is love is being patient, being kind, being arrogant. or being. Paul writes all these in verb form, which should tell us something, that love is an action. Love is doing stuff. It's observable in the way you act, not just an attitude. Love is, in the great words of the classic rock band Boston, more than a feeling. Love is put into action. What I want to do right now is I'm just going to go through all these descriptors, these verbs. It can feel like a lot. And maybe you'll drift in and out as we go through this. But what I would encourage you to do is see if one just kind of tweaks you a little bit as we go through this. And we'll walk through fairly quickly. You could do a sermon on each of these words. But as we go through it, just see if there's one that provokes you. And you think, you know what? The Lord may be working on me in this area. Paul's first observation is that love is patient, or being patient. Meaning, love gives time. Love gives time to the other person, allowing them to get to where they need to be. Impatience is saying to the other person, how come you aren't where I want you? How come you're not growing at the rate I want you to? How come you are not on my schedule? Do you sense the selfishness in that? How come you aren't where I want you to be? That's impatience. Patience is giving time towards the other person for them to grow as God ordains, for them to do what they need to do. Love is only concerned with your own plan. And there are times, you know, when you have kids where you can be a little impatient, and sometimes you need to be. Sometimes the shoes just need to come on, you need to get out the door, and you've got to get on my schedule. But overall, your parenting, your relationships will be better if they were marked by patience and generosity with the other in regards to time. With that, Paul says, love is kind. Kind is more than just being nice and pleasant. Kind To be kind is to be merciful and compassionate. Especially when others are rude or even mean. To be kind is to respond with gentleness when others are offensive. To be compassionate. Paul says love does not envy. We know what that is. Love is not jealous. Love does not look at what others have and say, I wish you didn't have that, and I wish I did. That's what jealousy really is. Envy all, all is, is, again, selfishness. I wish I had. I wish that God had given me, and made me like you. And I don't want you to have that. I can't rejoice in what you have. I can't take pleasure in what you have, because all I'm concerned about is me and what I have. That's what jealousy does. That's what envy is. Which is, others were deprived, so, and I could be gained. I want that life, that house, that car, that sports team. Sorry, I just saw Daniel Payne with the Bronco stuff and I figured he must be experiencing some envy and jealousy here. Which leads right right into love does not boast, so I have to repent. To boast means to heap praise on oneself, to brag about yourself. Love doesn't constantly seek your own praise. Doing things and, and wondering, where are all my likes? Where is all my approval? How can I get the most attention on me? Love gives praise and honor to others. Because love is not arrogant. Or as some translations say, and I love that, this wording, puffed up. Literally, that word arrogant means love does not have an exaggerated self-conception. Love isn't full of yourself. Love does not think you are bigger, more important than everybody else is. And we all tend to think we are the most important, that we are special, that we can't be corrected, that everybody should revolve around us. And especially as we gather for church, everybody has to do things that fit the way we want. Love doesn't do that. His love is not arrogant and full of the self. Love also is not rude. The strict definition of being rude here is an action that elicits disgrace. Another way of saying this is that love is not improper or inappropriate, and as Paul uses this, he probably has in mind something that is sexually inappropriate. So love does not act improperly towards others in a rude way. We might use the word crude. It does not bring shame toward others or disgrace them. Love treats everybody with honor and honors them. Love is not self-seeking. It does not insist on its own way. It considers what others want and what others feel. As I was reflecting on this, this is one of those ones that hit me. And I realized, oh, I have a long way to go in this. How rarely in my day-to-day life do I actively think, what is the other person thinking? What is the other person feeling? Even, and maybe especially in a fight or in a disagreement, an argument, how are they experiencing me right now? am I only about myself here trying to win the argument? Or am I going to stop and think, what are they going through? This is a, a crucial ability in marriage and any relationship where there might be tension. The ability to not be self-seeking, but to seek the good of the other and to think about what would benefit them. What are they going through? Love is not irritable. It is not easily provoked to anger. Why are we irritable? We're irritable when we are frustrated that we're not getting our way. Again, it all goes back to selfishness. Why am I angry? Why am I upset? Things aren't the way I want them. Things aren't working the way I want them. Other people aren't doing what I want them to do. I'm not doing what I want me to do. How come things are the way they are? And it's frustration that things aren't the way you would prefer. It's generally true that if you are an irritable person, and I am one of them, and I can be one of them, if you are that type of person, your problem is selfishness. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. The ESV says love is not resentful. But I think that translation of keeping a record of wrongs is a really good one. Love does not do that. Love does not keep score. Again, if I had um, maybe one piece of marriage advice or a number of pieces of marriage advice, this would be one of them. Don't keep score in your marriage. Hey, I did this, so you need to do that. And I did this part, so you need to pull your weight. And I'm doing everything well, and how come you aren't doing everything well? And keeping tally... Or, holding on to, remember when you did this, 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 and this? I'm going to store that and then bring it up later in a fight. Love does not do that. Love doesn't keep score and hold other people in debt. I say that because whenever we keep score, we pretty much always put the other person in debt. And love does not do that. Love has the ability to forget wrongs done. Paul then switches his focus a little bit into what we take pleasure in. He says, love does not rejoice in evil. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing or injustice or evil. There's a couple ways we can think about that or that applies. Love doesn't celebrate, affirm, or rejoice in wrong done or injustice. That means that love does not affirm or embrace that which is evil. And who defines what is evil? God defines what is right and wrong, what is just and unjust, what is evil and good. And whatever is evil, whatever is wrong, in the eyes of the Lord, love does not celebrate or affirm that. It is why is loving when Paul calls out sin and evil earlier in his letter to the Corinthians. He calls out div- divisiveness, sexual immorality, pride, because of love, if Paul actually loves them, is not going to celebrate or affirm or rejoice in their wrongdoing. This is an area where our world, and even the church, has gotten our definition of love wrong. Love does not affirm everything. Love doesn't affirm or celebrate or rejoice in what is wicked in the eyes of God. This also means that love doesn't rejoice in bad things that happen to other people. There's a German word for this. It's a beautiful word. You might know it. Schadenfreude. It's a great word, schadenfreude. Beautiful like all German words are. Taking pleasure in someone else's misfortune. On social media, there's a Twitter account called Instant Karma. And it's sinfully hilarious. Uh, Because it's a Twitter account that just has videos of people doing dumb things and getting immediately (laughs) penalized for it. Instant karma. And as we watch that and take joy in it, that's schadenfreude. It, It is taking joy in other people's downfall. When other people have wrong done to them or they do wrong and we just take pleasure in it. And this is something that also concerns me about the church. So there are ministries out there that I worry about, call themselves discernment ministries very often, and their whole bag, their whole spiel, is to call out what others do wrong. Now, Discernment, correction, all that needed in the church. But that kind of ministry can very quickly turn into people who just love it when others do wrong things so they get to pounce on it and feel better about themselves. I am glad I'm not wrong like those other people. And if we're not careful, our hearts very quickly can go to that place. I love calling out everybody else's wrongs because I get some sense of pleasure in it. Love doesn't do that. What does love do? Love rejoices in truth. Where do we get joy from? Where do we rejoice? Where do we celebrate? When truth is spoken and proclaimed, we love it. When God's word is spoken and embraced and applied, when people do what is right and just, when we see it in our families, in our church, in our kids, we revel in, we rejoice in good and truth that builds up. Love does that. Paul ends his description of love in verse 7 with a kind of a rhetorical flourish. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. To bear and endure all things are similar concepts. It means that love is long-suffering. It puts up with the mistakes of others, carries on, endures, even at the cost of self. When you love someone, you show your love by putting up with a lot. There's an obvious and challenging implication here. Love is painful. Love is not easy. Love is costly. To endure and to bear our painful things. But love will endure and bear all things, even if it gets inconvenient or difficult. Alternatively, love believes all things and hopes all things. This does not mean that love is gullible or naive. What it means is that love will assume the best of others. And will hope for the best of others. Love is not cynical. Always interpreting others' actions in the worst possible way. Oh, they said this and I know what they meant by it. Oh, he did this, and and I assume that what he did when he did that was an attack on me. I know it. That is not a a loving approach to relationships in life. To assume the worst always is not love. To be constantly suspicious. Resort to the worst interpretation. Rather, love assumes the best and is charitable in its interpretation of others, hopes for the best for others, wants the best for others, encourages the best for others. We know what it's like when someone doesn't believe in us or assumes we will fail, and how discouraging that is assuming our bad intentions. Love doesn't do that, love anticipates good in the other. Having covered the long list, how do you rate on the love scale? Are you a loving person? I'm not sure there's a more convicting few verses in all of Scripture than verses 4 through 7. The good news, the reason for hope and optimism, is Paul writes this as a correction to the church Loving them, assuming the best, and assuming that they can do this. They can be like this. He wouldn't say it if he didn't think they could. Paul writes this knowing the church can be a place of love. The church will be and is a place of love. And in fact, in the end, the church will only be a place of love. And that's where he ends his section on love talking about the eternity of love, that one day, in the fullness of all things, in the end, love will be complete and eternal. While spiritual gifts and giftedness and our talents and all these things will one day cease, the spiritual gifts that God has given us, love will never pass away. Love is eternal. And that's Paul's point in verses 8 through 13. This is why love should be pursued, because it's the thing that lasts and will last and will define the church forever. This is our destiny. This is where we're headed. We, as a community of Christ, will exist in this, as Paul says, faith, hope, and love for eternity, unlike our spiritual gifts that we may temporarily wield. Look at verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So part of the reason why we ought to pursue love above all other things, above all gifts, is because love will never end, unlike the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts that we're talking about here, they have a shelf life, they have an expiration date. Gifts like prophecies and tongues and knowledge, those one day will pass. And when Paul says that, he doesn't mean that one day we just won't know anything. And Paul's talking about the gift of knowledge. That gift where somebody is able to know God's word and know what God is saying and pass it on to somebody else and teach them. And, and somebody has unique access even to God's word. What he is saying? That will pass one day. This reality that we live in, that the church in Corinth lived in, where some people had um, some part of God and some people had another, and they all kind of had incomplete portions, all of that will one day cease, that whole situation. We can look at the spiritual gifts as almost partial glimpses into the heavenly realm, into where God is. The spiritual gifts are given as a means of heaven coming to earth. They're little ways we get to peek into what God is really like and who he is, and how we know him. That's what spiritual gifts are. Gifts of the Spirit to connect us to God in heaven. And one day, they will pass. Why? For the same reason that streetlights turn off in the morning. When the sun is out, and you can see clearly, you don't need that old streetlight any longer. Some of you have experienced long distance relationships, maybe long distance dating or times in your marriage, or maybe just being away from family where you've had to communicate over distance. And nowadays, we have things like FaceTime that we can use and text messaging. Previous days, you would write a letter or send a telegram, or maybe like have carrier pigeons who would send notes far away to where others were. But you don't do those things when you're face-to-face. I don't send nearly as many texts to my wife when I'm home. I send far more when I travel abroad. She almost likes it when I'm gone. (laughs) Oh, you text me now. But I don't need to do that when the person's right in front of me. You have something better. You can touch, you can hold, you can see face-to-face. And that's what Paul's getting at here. You won't need the spiritual gifts later because you will have the great gift of the Spirit. You will be in perfect fellowship and unity with God himself. You will see him just as, as Moses in Deuteronomy 32 or 40, 34 saw God. You will stand face-to-face with Christ himself, with God himself. And all those gifts will no longer be needed because you're united to God seeing Him face to face. In other words, the gifts of the Spirit will cease. That's what Paul's getting at when he uses this whole child illustration there in the middle. Uh, he's saying, you know, when I was a Child, Thought like a child, act like a child, reason like a child, because I was a child. Expect kids to do kid-like things. And just as a side note, we talked about this in our worship workshop last week, and parents, how do we engage kids in worship and all that? I would just want to say, we expect our kids to be kids. We expect a 6-year-old is going to act differently than a 12-year-old, an 18-year-old, and an adult. So we train and bring them along. And by and large, and I would just say as a rule... Our church is awesome at this. And our kids are great. And they're wonderful in the service. Because our parents are good parents. They love their kids. Right, that's just me as a pastor saying, well done, as an aside. But we expect kids to act like kids, because that's what they do. That's what kids are. But then when they grow up, we expect them not to act like kids any longer. They put away childish things. And again, some wives may be saying, I'm waiting for my husband to put away. <laughs> I look at all the toys and I wonder. And... And the point of it all is that one day, gifts will cease. There are some, here's a theological aside, because somebody's going to ask about this. So if you're not interested in this, just sleep for a couple minutes. I'll bring you back. But there's debate, so there are debates in the church, about when the gifts cease. So in the New Testament, we have all these miraculous things going on. Prophecy, tongues, gifts of healing. Are they still going on today? There are some who are given the label cessationists. Where does that come from? Cease. They believe the gifts ceased or stopped being in use in the first or second century. After the apostles died, we have the canon of scripture. We have God's perfect revelation in his word. The church is established, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We no longer needed those supernatural gifts because we had God's perfect revelation. And those supernatural gifts ceased in the first or second century, by and large. They are called cessationists. You may be in that camp. Others believe such miraculous gifts still continue to be used. They're still valid today. These people are called continuationists. Right? Makes sense. I love it when labels make sense. They believe the gifts continue on until today and will continue until Jesus returns. And they will point at this passage because what does it say? These gifts go on until the perfect comes, until we see Jesus face to face. And I think that interpretation is correct. If you're just strictly looking at this passage, it is clearly saying the gifts will cease at the end when we see Jesus face to face. I think that's the only fair reading of this passage in its context. But questions remain. So you say, am I continuationist? continuation? So I would say yes. And you ask, well, what about cessationism? I say, well, yes to that too. I'm kind of in the both. I'm a little bit in the middle on this. Uh, your pastor's squishy in uh, many ways, but on this, he's, just, he's right in the middle. In that, I am a continuationist in that I think if you... There's no other way to interpret this passage. Gifts cease when? At the end. However, I'm not a full-on continuationist who believes... All of the gifts are all operating in the same way they were in the New Testament. Why? Because Ephesians 2.20 says we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and that foundation has been laid. So I don't think we have apostles and prophets in the same way we did in the New Testament, who have equal authority and Revelation with Scripture. So Scripture stands alone as our source of authority and Revelation. So we do not have, I don't think, apostles and prophets in the same way the New Testament church did. Now there's also the question about other gifts. And about those, I'd say, eh, I don't know. I could be convinced either way. Gifts of tongues, are they still going on? You could convince me either way. I think, I just kind of take a very cautious approach. I think normally we don't have tongues in the way we did in the early church. Can God give somebody tongues for a moment in time, especially in missionary, evangelistic frontier ways where the gospel has gone out? Sure, I actually anticipate that's the case. But I'm kind of in the middle on this. You can convince me either way. So I'm going to hold a couple of things really strongly I don't think we have apostles and prophets the same way we did in the New Testament. And they experienced something unique as the church was established. I'm also going to say, I think gifts continue. Because I don't know any other way to interpret 1 Corinthians 13. And then everything else about that, we can just kind of argue and have fun about. That's my, if you're curious, that's my stance on gifts for now. The point is, all right, now back, all those of you who are sleeping... The point is for now we see in a mirror dimly, as Paul says. So you can imagine a mirror that's fogged up steam. can't really see. That's the way we see God now. Spiritual gifts are the towel that wipes away a little bit. Ah, oh, I see God more clearly. But for right now, we see in that mirror dimly one day, it'll be perfectly clear. And we'll rejoice in that day. And what will remain in that day when all gifts have ceased? God himself with us in faith and hope and love. Faith fulfilled. And I think even in eternity, ongoing, as faith is constantly rewarded because we'll never stop trusting him. And hope, ongoing, because we'll never stop having a positive outlook about where this is headed because we know our God. And we are experiencing fully his goodness forever. And love being at the foundation of all of it because that is who God is. God in himself is Love. Why? Because he exists and has existed forever in love. Different from other faiths and monotheistic faiths who believe in one God. But that one God didn't exist in relationship forever, according to some other faiths. Our God, the triune God, the God who is three in one, has existed in relationship, loving relationship with himself for eternity past. There has never been a moment at which God didn't have somebody to love. Because he is Father, Son, and Spirit in eternal loving relationship. And he will always be in eternal loving relationship. And we, if we are in Christ, joined to him, will be in his love forever. That is why we must pursue this. You might say, but I'm not worthy of that. And I would say, you're correct. None of us have loved perfectly. We went through those first four verses, four through seven, and we saw, oh man, I fall short. I don't love like this. And here's the good news. Jesus does. And has. And has shown you the love of God. On the cross of Christ, all the fullness of love was revealed. Long-suffering. Sacrificial. Dying. On our behalf, because He loves us. Because God doesn't celebrate evil but punishes it. But he rejoices in good and brings people into it through Jesus Christ. We are connected to him how? Not by our gifts, not by our abilities, not by how good you are. We are connected to Christ and his love forever by faith, hope, and love, specifically his love for us. As you go away this week, here's my homework assignment. Meditate on verses 4 through 7. Talk with your spouse. Talk with your two-for-two group, your friends, family. Where do I fall short in some of these things? Do that work because it's necessary. Do the greater work then of looking at verses 4 through 7 and this passage of love and saying, this is how God loves me. And rest in God's great love for you and his son. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a loving God and you have loved us that we love and are able to love, truly able to love because you first loved us. That our love is an expression, an outflowing, an overflow, a conduit of your love for us, Lord. So help us to meditate on, to rest in, to trust in your love shown through us, to us through the love of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, Lord, help us to be a people of love. thank you for your word to us that remains forever. Amen.